and the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. We're in chapter 3. But before we read, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Oh Lord our God, we come to you confessing that how low our fires of devotion and zeal for your glory in our hearts are often allowed to burn. We come to you acknowledging how prone our hearts are to wander. But we confess that we believe your word to be truer and sweeter than honeycomb. It's more precious than gold. It's a light to our path. It's a lamp to our feet. We still take detour after detour down blind alleys and we wander away. So as we, as we come this afternoon confessing our proneness to disobedience, we also ask, O oh Lord, render heavens and come down. Visit the assembly of your people. Take your word and inflame our hearts with new devotion, zeal for your honor and delight in your truth. Revive your work, O oh Lord, in the midst of the years. If there's any here this afternoon in Lake Road, chapel who are strangers to saving grace gracious God by your word bring them from death to life grant to them the gifts of faith to receive and rest on the Lord Jesus Christ in true repentance to forsake all others and cling to him alone so hear us visit us bless to us the ministry of your word for the renown of King Jesus in whose name we pray amen this is the word of God, Jonah chapter 3, and verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, he removed his robe, he covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw that when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is God's word. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And there is a great revival in Nineveh. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That is the declaration that stands like a banner over the book of Jonah. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God alone saves whom he will, when he will, and how he will. 
Salvation belongs to the Lord was uttered with fervency, if you remember, and doubtless with no small degree of relief by the wayward prophet Jonah when he was in the belly of the great fish. Jonah himself, having been made the recipient of God's saving sovereignty, he was plucked from Sheol, plucked from the grave and delivered. And Jonah was commanded to go to Nineveh. But instead he had taken a ship for Tarshish. It seems that pagans are not welcome in Jonah's version, in Jonah's version of the kingdom of God. And so he refused to be Jonah, the apostle to the Ninevites, and instead he fled. And yet we saw how God displayed extraordinary mercy and grace in disciplining and then delivering his wayward prophet by means of the great fish who vomited Jonah onto dry land. And today as we turn our attention to the third chapter, we see, we find that Jonah 3 is a chapter where that declaration, salvation belongs to the Lord, now takes center stage. And our attention focuses much less now on Jonah, God's wayward servant, and much more on the Lord God, Jonah's gracious saviour. And I want you to see three things in the passage with me this afternoon. Number one, the God who relents. In verses 1 to 3, and then in verse 10, like bookends at either end of the text, we hear, we learn about the God who relents. And secondly, in verse 4, we meet the God who rebukes. The God who rebukes. And then in verses 5 to 9, the God who revives. There is a great revival in Nineveh. So three points, the God who relents, the God who rebukes, and the God who revives. First of all, the God who relents. If you compare verses 1 to 3 of chapter 3 with the first three verses of chapter 1, just for a moment, you'll see immediate and striking similarities. Almost, and I say almost, I'll come back to that, but almost identical language is used. So Jonah is standing on dry land, and it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. The same call comes a second time to Jonah. Which is amazing if you think about it. Would you have given this guy a second chance? You might have had him cleaning you know, the, the backyard, but would you have given him the same commission again? But God in his grace, God in his grace, is not, thankfully, is not like you and I. We can be so mean-hearted, can't we? I find myself, the older I get, the harshness of my own heart and the sadness I feel when I just see harshness being expressed to one another. But Jonah is commissioned again for the same ministry. He had defected. He had abandoned his post. He had run away. 
He had betrayed the trust given to him as a prophet of the Lord, as a preacher of the Word of God. He had fled to Tarshish. But Jonah stands now on familiar shores. He's chastened and compliant. And the similarities between the opening verses of chapter 3 and the opening verses of the whole book of Jonah in chapter 1 are intentional. Absolutely they are intentional. Because the Lord God has hit the reset button. You know, my friends, I thank the Lord that he is a God of second chances. I thank the Lord that I do not get what I deserve. I thank the Lord that none of us get what we deserve. I thank the Lord that he came to Jonah a second time. And we're back at the beginning once more. Having saved Jonah from death, God recommissions him for ministry. Jonah gets a second chance. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And we've seen several times as we've worked through our book of Jonah together that although the prophet Jonah has run from the Lord, the Lord will not go the prophet will not let go of the prophet Jonah. I was very much moved this morning by our brother's word. It was tremendous. I thank the Lord that he has not let me go. He has not let me go. The Lord is not done with Jonah. The Lord is at work in his life to discipline him and bring him back to faithfulness. But here we see the Lord at work to restore Jonah, not just to personal faithfulness, but to public usefulness. Jonah has failed badly, but God is restoring him again. And Jonah, as we saw last time, has not actually yet repented. And yet God is showering him with mercy. Nevertheless, sometimes when God seeks to awaken us to the sin still festering in our hearts, sometimes he will use the rod of providential discipline. That's what we saw in chapters 1 and 2. God using his loving rod of providential discipline. The Lord, God disciplining Jonah in his providence. Sometimes the Lord will send storms and tempests. Sometimes we, like Jonah, are thrown into the chaos of the raging sea. The Lord God does use the rod of discipline. But like the wise and tender and loving father he is, sometimes he uses the caress of grace. Because if the Lord God only ever showed us the rod of discipline and never the caress of grace, we might easily lose sight of his loving heart. My dear friend, the Lord God wants to win Jonah and he wants to win you. So he will discipline you, believer in Jesus, but he will also woo you and shower on you undeserved, unmerited kindness. Your sin notwithstanding. So you might remember, you might remember this day that God is a God of mercy that God is slow to anger, 
and that God is abounding in steadfast love. Wouldn't that be a great thing to go out of here, out of here reminded of that? That God is seeking to woo you, believer in Jesus, so that we might once again begin to trust him. Not to flee from him, but to run to him, even with our sin, and find that God is ready to forgive and to receive us once again. And at this point in the story, at least, in Jonah's case, that mixture of discipline and kindness seems to be working well. And whereas in chapter 1, as the call of God came to Jonah, we see Jonah rising to flee from the presence of the Lord. This time, as the call comes the second time, Jonah arises to go to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So far, so good, we might say. At last, Jonah is beginning to obey. And you know the rest of the story. And you know there are good reasons to doubt whether Jonah has changed at all. Chapter 4 is a very sobering chapter. And Jonah is not really a repentant man, but here in chapter 3, that is not our concern. It's not the concern of the, of the narrator. The narrator wants our attention to rest not so much on the condition of Jonah's heart or the quality of Jonah or the quality of his obedience at this point. The, the narrator wants us to focus on the character of God who relents from wrath and instead shows mercy. That is what God is like. Behold your God. God loves to save his people. And even when his people do not get it, do not obey as they ought, God showers on them his grace. God prefers grace to judgment. Do you believe that? That God prefers grace to judgment. He is the God who relents. Grace freely received is grace freely shared. And that will be precisely the experience of the Ninevites themselves in verse 10. As Jonah preaches the word that the Lord gives him, these people are profoundly gripped and convicted of their sin and begin to repent. And verse 10 tells us when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said that he would do to them and he did not do it. And here is another one of those delicious ironies with which the book of Jonah is laced. The, the prophet of the Lord, Jonah, Jonah is an object lesson Desired to, designed to teach him and the people for whom the book was written that God loves to show mercy. You see, God loves to show mercy. So if God saves and shows mercy to an unrepentant wayward prophet, will he not also save a repentant city that turns to him for pardon? It is a lesson that we need to remember too, is it not? the Lord deals with Nineveh the same way that he deals with Jonah. He does not have double standards, do you see? One for us 
and another for everyone else. I find myself sometimes, I love mercy, don't you? I love to receive mercy. But I'm not so keen when, he, when, when mercy is shown to someone else. Especially somebody I can't stand. But God does not have double standards. I do, but God does not have double standards. He does not deal with you as though you were a unique case. Neither so bad that he cannot shower his grace on you and nor so good that he will not discipline you. He deals with you in the same way according to the same pattern with which he will deal with others. The same grace he gave you, he will give to others. Which is a precious truth that should arm us to fight against thinking we're better than other people. I think that is one of the besetting sins of Christians. That we simply and quickly think that we're better than other people. It would, it would guard us against exclusivity and insularity and the pride that so easily lurks in our own hearts. God is free to bring others into his kingdom as he is to bring you. The Lord is saying to Jonah and the Lord would say to you, you are not better than, 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 than the Ninevites. If I may have mercy on you, may I not relent from the disaster. I purpose against them when they turn to me. God is free to show mercy to whom he, he ever he wills. Do you not see how helpless your own case, apart from the intervention of God who relents, has always rarely been? Why then should you be reluctant to serve him in reaching others in a similar condition, whosoever they may be? It is no secret what God can do, what he's done for others, he'll do for you. With arms wide open, he'll pardon you. It is no secret what God can do. Maybe this afternoon the word of God is coming to you a second time. A word of mercy may be. After your fall, after your sin. But do you see from this passage that to whomever God shows mercy, he calls to service. Grace is not to be kept to yourself. The message of comfort to my soul that God is a God who relents is also a commission. It always is. The God who relents is the God who sends. God is not done with you yet as he shows you mercy. It is so that he might use you, yes you, in other people's lives also. That's always the way God works. Do you remember Simon Peter? Three times denying him. Now he's definitely for the scrap heap, right? He denied our Lord three times. He, three times he denied that he knew Jesus. And three times the risen Lord Jesus confronted the Apostle Peter. Three times. And he said, do you love me? And Peter affirmed his love for, for Christ. And for each of his three denials, the Lord Jesus gave Peter three commissions. Three denials, three commissions. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, 
feed my sheep. So like God's mercy that was showered on wayward Jonah, Jesus showed Peter mercy, not just to forgive Peter, but to make Peter an instrument of mercy in others' lives also. God shows us grace so we might share his grace with others. The compassion of God always brings the commission of God. The grace you're given is grace you are to share. The God who relents. Secondly, the God who rebukes. Jonah begins his march into the city about a day's journey and he begins to preach. And this is, we have a one-line summary of Jonah's preaching ministry in verse 4. It's hardly the most heartwarming of messages. It certainly isn't your best life now. If you look at it, verse 4, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's his sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It does not seem like much of a message to us. But look, at, but look at the extraordinary effect it produces on the Ninevites. A mighty revival. An awakening ensues in the wake of what seems to us a rather abrupt message. And that's putting it politely. Another way of putting it would be a mighty revival comes from an awful preaching. So before we move on, we need to linger over Jonah's preaching ministry, asking ourselves, why has it been so very effective? What is it about Jonah's preaching that produces such mighty effects? Well, the first thing to say is that Jonah preached the word of God. He did. He preached the word of God. See, I wonder whether you picked this up when you read it, that, jo that Jonah's commission in chapter 3, although nearly identical is different from the original commission in chapter 1. The first commission called Jonah to arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But chapter 3, Jonah is told, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. The emphasis here is on the exact conformity of Jonah's message to God's instruction. Now, given Jonah's aptitude for doing the exact opposite for what God says, you can understand that, the, that this is a, an important clarification. Jonah is to say only what he is given to say and nothing more. But it also drives home the point that Jonah is not here to find some mechanism for producing an effect on the Ninevites. He is not a manipulator of men. He is there to deliver a message. He is a herald. He is saying what God's word says, nothing more and nothing less. And that is why in verse 5, as they listen to Jonah's message, the people of Nineveh believed God. Did you just hear, the, did you receive the force of that? It was Jonah who preached, but they believed God. So Jonah came preaching, but in that preaching, God was talking. God was rebuking their sin. God was dealing with their hearts. And that is true preaching. 
It's the Word of God coming in demonstration of the Holy Spirit and power. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 4, Paul says, My message was, were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. When the preacher says what God says, God says it. You may not like the preacher, but when the preacher says what God says, God says it. The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. That is why sometimes the preaching of the Word of God is described as the prophetic Word. It is stunning. It is God who's talking. They did not believe Jonah. They heard Jonah talking and they believed God. As Jonah delivered the message, God himself spoke to their hearts. The other thing to say about Jonah's preaching is that he preached the bad news and the good news. If you look at verse 4, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It actually seems like entirely bad news. Especially when you learn that in the Hebrew scriptures, that word that Jonah uses, overthrown, is bound up with the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah, whom God destroyed in Genesis 19. So the dire implications of Jonah's preaching is strengthened even further. This really is fire and brimstone. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown and the word was linked to the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. And like Sodom and Gomorrah, Jonah is saying Nineveh is facing destruction from the hand of God. Hang on a minute. That word overthrown is also a double entendre. It has two meanings. It can also mean an inversion, a reversal, a turning upside down, an about face, a change of heart. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 23 and verse 5, it says, the Lord your God turned. And that's exactly the same Hebrew word. Overthrown, turned around, inverted, transformed. It says, the Lord your God turned, and that's our word, overthrown, the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. So, as summaries go, the summary of Jonah's preaching ministry in verse 4 is absolutely, <laughs> I was so struck by this, it is a masterclass of brevity and clarity. In one word, that word overthrown, bad news is threatened, unrepentant hearts will face the wrath and curse of God, and in the same word, good news is proclaimed. I found that tremendous, that in one word, Judgment is threatened and the good news is proclaimed. If there is a, turn, a change of heart, then a great reversal will occur. The city will either be overthrown or turned around because the word has two meanings. It all depends how they respond to the preaching of the word of God. As you hear God's word preached this morning and this afternoon, you're hearing God himself. In as, so far as the preacher says what God says, 
God says it. Which makes the preaching of the Word of God the most important thing that you will hear all week long. Do you believe that? There is not a proclamation made by a monarch or a president or on the steps of Downing Street, however far-reaching in its implications with the authority of the Word of God. There is no news broadcast shown in our television screens, however momentous its significance, that can bear the weight of eternity that the gospel of Jesus Christ carries. God is speaking to you this afternoon in the ministry of his word. So it becomes a matter of the most profound urgency. How will you respond as God calls you to repentance and to service? Alec Motia quoted the dedication of one of, as a Japanese theologian, Kosuke Konama. And the dedication in his book goes like this to the memory of Herbert G. Brand, through whose preaching in broken Japanese my grandfather was converted to Jesus Christ. It was broken Japanese. He wasn't fluent, eloquent, through the stammering, broken Japanese his grandfather was converted to Jesus Christ. It isn't the rhetorical skill of the preacher that changes lives. It is God. It is God who speaks by his word even when it comes from poor, lisping, stammering tongues. It wasn't Jonah's wonderfully prepared sermon. One, uh, one uh, I, I wondered how the, how the how the Ninevites even understood him. Was his Ninevite, whatever it is, you know, his, his Ninevite language, was it as broken as Herbert Brand's Japanese? No, it was the word of God attended by the Holy Spirit and the power of God that brought a change in their hearts and in their lives. And that is what we need. The voice of God speaking in Holy Scripture showing us Jesus the only saviour of sinners. I have a note in my Bible, I say it, a lot of, some, some preachers have it on their pulpit. Sir, we would see Jesus. And that's what we need to pray for, Lord's Day after Lord's Day. Do you pray for your pastor that he would preach Jesus? Nothing else, nothing less. That he would proclaim the word of God. Not a pep talk, not an inspirational message, not a few dripping thoughts about the problems of the day, but the pure word of God. And then plead with heaven that it might be attended with the blessing and the presence of the Spirit of God. It was God who spoke in verse 4 of Jonah 3. It was God who spoke. And thirdly, the God who revives. God gives his word power as Jonah preaches and the city responds. There is a great awakening in Nineveh. It was not something organized and prearranged, of course. The annual Ninevite revival committee did not book Jonah to come Tuesday through Thursday for the revival between 6 and 8.30. This isn't a revival in, 
in that sense of the word, Noah revival is something that God does in the hearts of people as they hear the word of the Lord preached in demonstration of the Spirit in power. Just, just look at what characterizes the awakening in Nineveh. The characteristics of true revival. There's faith in verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. I love that. <laughs> they didn't just believe in him, they believed him. See, e even the devils believe in God. Even the devils have that kind of faith and tremble. We need to have much more faith than God is. You know, sometimes on your TV screen you hear somebody describe about their faith and it sounds, <laughs> I want to scream at the TV, I really do. It's not only belief in God, we need to have faith to rest on the God who saves. We need to believe God. They believed God. They didn't just believe in God, they believed God. They believed his message. They trusted God, his word, his promises. Friends, it is not enough to believe in Jesus. You must believe Jesus. We must not merely acknowledge truths about him, his life, his death, his person, his work. We must receive and rest on him as he is offered in the gospel. That's what it means to believe Jesus. Secondly, there's deep and true repentance. The universal corollary of saving faith. Faith and repentance are always found together, never apart. Whenever there is saving faith, there is a repentant heart. And whenever a sinner repents, he does so believe in the gospel. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. The emblems of mourning. Even the king when he heard the word of the Lord, is cut to the heart. Notice how he humbles himself. He stepped away from the throne. And by doing that, he acknowledged that God was the true sovereign. That's what it meant when he stepped away from the throne. He disrobed. He put on sackcloth instead. He issued the royal decree. He called the city to fast. Verse 8, let, let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. That is the content of their prayer. That's the hope. Timid, trembling, uncertain. In light of the gravity and the filth of our sin, could it be? Could it be that God will forgive? There is no presumption, but there's urgency. There is no false confidence, but there's a real recognition of the sinfulness of sin. No attempt to leverage or to manipulate the deity, but they're cast entirely on his grace as they forsake their rebellion and they seek his pardon. And as they cried out to God, he heard and he answered. Do notice how the content of the prayer that the king calls for corresponds precisely to the content of God's response. Did you see that? In verse 8, let everyone turn from his evil way. And then in verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. That's the first. And then the second, in verse 9, 
Who knows? God may turn and relent. And then verse 10, God relented of the disaster that he said that he would do. So God conformed his response to the requests of these repentant pagans. It is amazing. And it should be wonderfully and beautifully reassuring to us all. Even the Ninevites' prayers take hold of the mercy of God when they respond to his word in repentance and faith. Even Ninevites. My friend, the Lord never turned anyone away. However wicked and, wicked and wayward they may be, who come to him seeking mercy, the, he never turned anyone away. Not Ninevites, not you, who come to him seeking mercy. The gospel is that Jesus Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree. He died the just for the unjust to bring us to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is good news. Let it arise from this place this afternoon that sin has been paid for. Salvation has been won. Forgiveness has been purchased for every sinner who repents and believes. Acceptance before God for all who come seeking it from the hands of Christ. And when you come to Jesus seeking his mercy because of his person and his work, because of all that he has done, you cannot be denied. God must save you because his son has shed his blood for all and any who will come and find pardon. The Lord never turned anyone away who came to him truly seeking mercy. Not the Ninevites and not you. Will you not come and seek mercy and find full and free forgiveness in Jesus Christ? And when many hearts respond together to the word of God, that is a revival. That is an awakening. Is that not the great need for our church, for our nation, for our town? Where the, where the word of God is attended with unusual power and it grips the hearts of all who hear so that men and women, boys and girls are brought first to a conviction of sin and then by God's grace to faith and repentance. It is the work of God alone. Only he can do it. We cannot work it up. We cannot manufacture it. But when he pours his spirit out on the preached word and Christ is displayed in his sufficiency, nothing can stop the preaching of the gospel. Nothing. If you look about our world and our social media, they think that they can stop God. It's clear. In the teaching in our schools, they think that they can say, did God really say they think that they can reverse the God of work. They can't. They cannot. And we need to pray for a greater awakening in our nation whose evil has come up before the Lord. And as we hear and we begin to obey the commission of the Lord because we have found mercy so that we might be instruments of mercy among our friends, among our families, among our streets, among our communities, and plead with God that his word, as it is proclaimed, might be attended with power 
and that he might rend the heavens and do his revival work in the midst of his hearers. The thing I pray for a lot is revival. Not something that we can rustle up, but that God would rend the heavens and God would come down. We need a revival today, so would you make it a matter of urgent pleading prayer that as the word of God is preached in your church, that the bad news is proclaimed, but the good news is proclaimed, and that God might bless it and many might be brought to know Christ. Let's pray together. Now, Lord, our God, our Heavenly Father, we cry to you for revival. We cry to you for a true awakening. We ask that the preaching of the Word of God might bear fruit in the lives of your people and through your people in the lives of others. That they might hear the unsearchable riches of the grace of Christ. So, Lord our God, come and have mercy on us and then use us as instruments of mercy on others. In Jesus' name, amen.